Quantified Health Wellness and Aging Podcast. A podcast about the latest products and services, technologies and people pushing forward a new frontier. Bi-monthly Lee S. Dreiber hosts a pioneer for an in-depth discussion. And now over to the show. Hello and welcome to the Quantified Health Wellness and Aging Podcast. Previously, the Wellness as a Service podcast, and prior to that, the Hyper Wellbeing podcast. So that's now the third name change since launch 18 months ago. This name will stick, however. We've just been finding our feet and audience. Previously, the audience was B2B, which didn't quite make sense. Now the, the audience is twofold. We do have the B2B angle, so that's professionals who wish to track a, a trillion dollar shift and new growth markets. But secondly, the B2C angle, which is savvy consumers who wish to stay at the forefront, live longer and in an optimal state. From now on, we'll uh, stick to a broadcast schedule of twice a month. I've got a lot of great guests agreed and lined up. I'm Looking forward and excited, even in these turbulent times. And with no further ado, I wish to welcome Daniel Maggs, CEO of Bisu. Daniel is a biohacker and a fitness enthusiast. Daniel started Bisu after working as a corporate lawyer, tech banker, and product manager. He works between Tokyo and the US and is fluent in Japanese. Daniel received a BA in Japanese studies from Cambridge University and an LLB in law from the College of Law. Hello and welcome to the show, Daniel. Uh, Thanks very much for having me, Lee. I appreciate it. I can't remember how I came across yourself. I know that I follow um, a partner of Hacks, Benjamin Joffe, who's a a friend, and I believe that Bisu came through the the Hacks Hardware Accelerator program. Yeah, so Ben's a great guy. Um, Hacks is... A program we went through in 2017, three-month accelerator. Uh, you know, we're an early-stage startup. It helped get us through, you know, fundraising, product development, user experience, and then, uh, yeah, they invested in us. So we've we have a, a lifetime partnership, as it were. So did that mean you had to go and live in Shizan? Where are you just now? So I'm in Tokyo right now. I've been here for the last six or bit years. But I was in Shenzhen for three months uh, for that program. And then they have an office in SF, and I go to SF reasonably regularly now. I typically go to the US once a month. What caught my attention was I I saw you claiming that – I don't want to say claiming Mm. because I actually think you're correct, so it kind of understates it. You're on record as saying that we're flushing terabytes of data down the toilet, and your aim is to help us capture that data for health and fitness. And you also said you think the toilet will change from a waste collection device to a data collection device. I think you estimated in a five to seven year time frame. So that perspective of changing the toilet to a data collection device, could you briefly explain that? Sure. So, you know, I'm not the first person to talk about health sensing toilets. This is a idea that was really raised 20 years ago by a Japanese company called Panasonic. And um, 2008, uh, a Japanese company called Toto actually made the first such product, which was about $4,000. It was installed in elderly care homes, and it detected glucose in urine. And two years later, they shut the whole thing down. And there are a couple of reasons for this. 
One is that the technology that they use, this company called Microfotics, was very much in its infancy at the time. The whole field is only about 27 years old. So by then it was about, you know. Microfluidics yes. so, is 27 years old. speaking. And the second was is it was very expensive and bulky and, um, you know, another probably the most important issue is that what they were detecting in urine was glucose. And that's something which may or may not appear even if you have high blood sugar. So it has what we call a false negative risk that the user might think, ah, my blood sugar is not high because there's no glucose in my urine. But actually their blood sugar is high. It's just it's not appearing. They learn the lesson the hard way, but technically speaking, it's already been done, but just not, I think, in the ultimate way it's going to be done. So maybe let's talk now about what it's going to become. You know, there are obviously two sources of data from your body that you release in the toilet, one in the urine and one in the feces. You know, the toilets of the near future uh, will be gathering data across a range of sources. Naturally, you can gather a lot of this data outside the toilet. There are some things that having a toilet form factor will make easier. So for example, if you want to do very uh, deep analysis, for example, of metabolites or you know, highly complex sensing, you need a lot of space. So if you wanted to have a, it's called a mass spectrometer, it's basically lab equipment, um, uh, you would need probably the form factor of a toilet to have a place to actually conceal it. It would not be a portable product like ours. Um, if you want something that's more um, simple, but still highly actionable, like how much salt is in your diet, how much potassium, how much magnesium, you could do something that's a lot uh, more small. It could be in a toilet, it could also be portable. But really just come back to the important point is what actually is in your waste, okay? It's your information in your diet, um, your protein intake, your fruit and vegetable intake, your hydration, your electrolytes. It's hormone markers, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, you know, pregnancy, fertility hormones, cortisol. Um, you can test in saliva, but urine is also good. Um, it's inflammation markers. It's markers of oxidative stress. And these you know, have different kinds of sensing technology that's required. But, you know, I see sometimes people have the perception that blood is the gold standard of health tracking. And there are many biomarkers for which that's the case. So glucose, 100%, vitamin D, 100%. But there are many biomarkers for which urine is the gold standard, or even saliva. So saliva, cortisol. Saliva is the best possible biofluid uh, for testing cortisol. In the case of urine, um, you want to test electrolytes and pH, for example, the urine test is much more reliable than the blood test. Probably sodium is the only electrolyte in serum that's really good because most of your sodium is held in your blood. Most of the non-sodium electrolytes are held outside the blood. So really what we say is, you know, this is about a missing piece of the health puzzle that's completely painless, that you have to produce enough sample every day. You know, getting enough serum at home is obviously very difficult, as Theranos found out. And, you know, with a single measurement taken daily or even less often a week gives you the overall picture of, okay, you know, what's looking good and what needs work without having to obsess about the detail of your health. Thank you for the uh, great introduction. I also was of the opinion that blood was, <laughs> the, I'm laughing because I realize uh, lately I've been realizing I'm wrong. I also was a uh, had implicitly accepted that blood was a gold standard. 
But then, incidentally, and I wish I'd had a lot more time to uh, go into the field before talking with yourself, or maybe it's a Mm. nice coincidence, because sometimes it's better when you don't know things and you talk to another, uh, certainly for an audience. But I came across uh, Dr. Linda Frusato, who uh, is an anthropologist. Have you heard of her? So Linda's a a sort of emeritus professor at UCSF. And Linda is someone who his main focus is taking care of parent uh, patients, I should say, who have um, kidney disease, so chronic kidney disease, which means basically over time your kidneys are naturally decline, but they decline to the point that you need medical assistance. And people with hypertension or high blood pressure. Um, but what she's also very interested in, you know, that's her medical work as a researcher, is what are the factors that actually cause um, these conditions to occur and how can we help people maximize the use and health of their kidneys as long as possible as it happens she's an advisor to bisu and um you know i'm not a medical doctor myself but she gives very good advice in terms of the biomarker research and so on to make sure that we stay on the right path first of all that's awesome she's an advisor do you have a list of advisors on the website? Because I must have yeah, missed that do. one. Yeah, we do. So she's already she listed be, yes. there. So she's the, a medical doctor who's a nephrologist, so a kidney doctor, essentially. There is Dr. Alan Garber, who is an um, endocrinologist or a diabetes doctor. And there's Molly Malouf, who is a, um, really, I say, digital health expert. So she's kind of a practicing doctor, but she's more focused on wellness than medical practice in the conventional sense. And then we have a couple of biomarker experts, Dom D'Agostino and a regulatory advisor. So uh, yeah, they all have their own area of expertise. I'm gonna check the website as we talk. So I only became aware of Linda uh, recently, so that was a nice coincidence. And she seemed uh, just, you know, just one of these people who just lives for their field. And when I was looking um, at materials from her, I coincidentally, because I'd already invited you to the podcast, had started thinking, hey, she's focused on sick patients. And then I started uh, getting excited because, you know, the, the, the relation between the kidneys and aging. So then I'm like, hey, why, why are we not taking measurements of people uh, not because she said that many of the patients who end up by the time they end up uh, at the hospital, they've got 25% of their kidney function. That's quite shocking. And then when I looked at what the various testing around the kidneys were, well, it wasn't like super expensive or super that complicated in most cases. So it was like, why are you letting people lose their kidney function over time? you know, that reactive healthcare model. So it just seemed another area where uh, healthcare, just like with diabetes, lets you sail into over 10, 20, 40 years without telling you you're already on that trajectory. Yeah, I mean, it is a big issue. Um, There are roughly 40 million people, I think, in the US, for example, who have kidney disease. 90% of them don't know they have kidney disease. And the typical way people find out is when it's uh, too late. 
um, maybe stage three at the earliest. So if you're age 60 to 70, it's very common for people to have what's called stage two kidney disease. So significantly reduced kidney function, but just prior to the stage where you need treatment. And people often, you know, many people die before it goes to that stage. Many do require treatment. But, you know, um, part of the problem is that you know, kidney disease is a chronic condition, which means it develops slowly over time. It's like you don't necessarily see it because it's not acute. It's not hitting you in the face. And um, we also have a medical system that typically uh, has weak incentives for preventing disease conditions. Uh, you can test to see if you have kidney disease. So if you have an annual physical you can see uh, what's called your GFR, so your glomerular filtration rate, uh, basically how efficiently your kidneys are, are working. And you can also test for protein in your urine. But that's really like an end result. Um, what's perhaps more important is actually the behaviors that are causing these conditions to develop. So typically it's high carbohydrate intake together with high salt intake and what's called a high dietary acid load. So having a diet that has a lot of um, you know, animal proteins, grains, and things like cheese and offal, and not much fruit and vegetables. And that's something that accelerates the kind of kidney function. So really the important point here is that your liver is incredibly resilient. It can regenerate um, even after losing a lot of, of function, your kidneys cannot regenerate in the same way. So in a world where many of us are increasingly living to age 100, um, investing in good kidney health is a really wise choice. Um, so I think she raises a really important area of people's health. Many people who have conditions like diabetes as well typically develop things like kidney disease at the same time. So it's not it's not a small problem and it's something that we can all be aware of, not be afraid of, but just really take some smart steps to protect ourselves. Because of her who had um, made me aware of exactly what you said, that the kidneys don't regenerate like the liver and that we're putting unnecessary loads in the kidney. And I think we're doing it in lots of ways, uh, but a primary one being, a, as you said, a diet, a high acidic diet. And jumping into diets, mm. just a, a little tangent here, is that I have been experimenting with uh, diets for 10 years. And I've been involved with uh, companies working in the AI space to determine what the ideal diets are for your mm. unique biology. At least uh, <laughs> that was the aim. You know, you begin naive and I'm laughing because a few years later you kind of yeah, you realize how mm. naive you were. And the problem I have when it comes to diets is I upset vegans if I don't if I don't hail the flag for veganism. And I upset the low carb or keto community if I don't hail the flag for that. And yet I appreciate both. And because of Linda, I have Typically, I'd be low carb. We can call it that. But to be honest, it's not low carb. It's just eating like we traditionally did. Uh, that's the only dietary mm. advice I'm, I'm solid on is don't eat processed food. And when you don't eat processed food, you have what's technically a low carb diet. 
since we've been upping our carb content mm. the last 30, 40 years in particular. And so I, I lost a lot of weight using keto. So I saw the intervention a ketogenic diet can be. And I think it's very good as a short-term intervention. And I do realize that we should cycle into ketosis occasionally in the year for longevity reasons. But because of Linda, I realized that I probably should cut back on dairy, for example, because of the the load. And it ties into, I couldn't under, correlate some of the work by Walter Longo. You know, he pushes um, pescatarianism uh, and veganism as a path to longevity. And also a lot of work I saw on uh, mm. the ketogenic side for longevity. What I came to realize is we should take care of uh, the stress upon our kidneys and we should measure it. And you say that the doctor does what you, um, is called GFR. I've never saw that available. I think it's calculated. I haven't had a time, time to look into it. I think it's some kind of calculation that's made. And I'm not aware of doctors doing that, but I do know that I periodically test creatinine and bun, and I'll do an albumum to creatinine. So I'm not sure if doctors do GFR, so, traditional doctors. a really doctor. good point. So I actually learned recently there are more than one way to estimate kidney function. Um, creatinine is very commonly tested. So creatinine is basically uh, a waste product or something called creatinine, a creatine, which many people have heard of. If you take creatine supplements, creatine comes from muscle protein. So every day, typically one to two percent of your muscles are turned into uh, creatinine um, and excreted at a steady rate. So it's a really good measure, or it can be a good measure of kidney function, but it can also be influenced by things like dietary protein intake and how much muscle you have in your body because that's also converted. But um, for that reason, there are other methods to uh, estimate kidney function which do not involve creatinine. So yes, um, it's not the only way. Yeah, so if you have a high body mass, I think you have, if you have a lot of muscle, I think you can have quite high levels of creatinine. But if you're elderly, it of tends course, to be on the low side. Muscle mass. Right. So um, yes, it's, it's not the only way to measure it, but people obviously will be testing, you know, BUN and creatinine um, to get a to get a picture of you know where your kidneys are at. Okay, but this GFR, do you know if you can go get it tested that easily? I'm just not aware of it. And yet, after listening uh, to Linda, GFR is on my to do list to look at as a marker, and I've not got to that point in the, the to do list yet. One possibility is that it's a test that's used commonly by nephrologist but not necessarily by general practitioners so that's a question that's come to my mind now that um it might be something that's not commonly included in standard physicals but if the doctor your gp say in uk at least general practitioner thinks you might need to get you know, further inspection might pass as nephrologist and then the nephrologist might run that test so i'm not 100 percent certain but that's one possibility Okay, that would be my understanding. It would require a referral. It started having myself think about just going to a private uh, hospital and asking mm. uh, how much it would charge to do that. We, we jumped into the deep end, which is okay. But what I haven't done so far is mention your company and your product. So your company, I think, is perhaps Bisu, and you have something which I... No, oh, so, please correct um, me. Bisu. We say Bisu, I mean... 
to be honest, there's no there's Bisu. no one right answer, although we prefer Bisu. Let me explain where the name comes from. So Bisu is the Egyptian god of home and health protection. Most people have heard of Ibiza, the island. And Ibiza is an old Phoenician name meaning dedicated to Bisu. So people think of Ibiza as being a, a pleasure island, you know, good times, having fun. Bisu is a god who made evil and disease go away and good times and having fun come in. So we're a company that's about helping people have a healthy, happy life. It sounds a laudable aim. And you have a product, I think it's called the Body Coach. Are you still calling it the Body Coach? Okay, would you, could you introduce sure. so, it, please? Uh, Bisu Body Coach is a urine analyzer um, that gives you personalized feedback on your diet uh, to help you really do one of three things. Um, to get fitter, so to improve your exercise performance, uh, to lose weight, or to, you know, we say protect your health, but, um, you know, if you're getting a little bit older, um, you might have potentially some health concerns or you need to watch out for certain things. It's something you can be using to, you know, keep yourself on the right track. Uh, specifically right now, it's testing um, sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium, so your electrolytes, uh, hydration, pH as a marker of what we call acid load, um, and two types of ketone. So it's a little bit different from a conventional urine ketone test. It has two ketones rather than one. I can go into more in a bit. And the same device can test many other things. So we have a roadmap to release. Uh, this year, we're going to release the diet test. And then next year, uh, a saliva test for oral health. So cavities, erosion, gum disease, a pet urine test, uh, a baby diaper. So checking your baby's health. Um, and then some classic tests like pregnancy and ovulation and you know urinary tract infections. But really what we focused on is not so much traditional diagnostics, like maybe you have a disease, maybe you don't, uh, which a lot of the time is not going to show anything. So you're spending money and not getting much back, but rather things that will create a feedback loop um, to understand, you know, are my electrolytes in the right ratio? Do I have enough, you know, salt relative to my water intake? Um, you know, do I have enough, say, green vegetables in my diet to counteract the effects of that cheese I'm having? Um, you know, uh, how far in ketosis am I really? Um, these kind of uh, insights um, is what we're focusing on uh, right now. What type of, did you say which ketones you're measuring? Did you say if it was beta-hydroxy, butyrate, or uh, acetoacetate? I, 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 you may have no, said I missed both. it. both. So, um, you know, a classic uh, blood ketone test tests beta-hydroxybutyrate or BHB. It's the dominant ketone body in prolonged ketosis. So there are three forms of ketone, BHB, uh, ACAC, and then acetone, which is technically like a... Uh, um, kind of like a waste product of acetoacetate, which kind of breaks down to form acetone in the breath. And um, BHB is formed from acetoacetate. So it, we say acetoacetate or ACAC is reduced to form BHB. You can switch back again. But the more you're in ketosis, the more BHB is produced relative to ACAC. Um, if you test in urine, the conventional test strip will only test ACAC. So what happens is that uh, 
the amount of uh, ACAC appearing in urine goes down for obvious reasons because more BHB is being produced relative to ACAC. And that strip also has a pretty, how can I say, high detection threshold. So it's it's uh, the smallest concentration it can detect is quite a lot higher than the smallest amount that can appear in the urine. So people who use the urine test strip typically find for the first one to two weeks, okay, I'm getting some data, and it stops. Um, oh, no, the strip has stopped working. What's happened is not that you stopped excreting ketones, but you're not excreting enough acetoacetate for anything to register. So what our device does is it measures both the BHB and the ACAC in the urine together, and the ratio between them shifts based on the stage of ketosis. So um, roughly equal parts, you're in earlier stage, and primarily BHB, you're in a deep stage of ketosis. And it keeps working even after the classic urine test strip has stopped working. Normally, people who are first-timers with experimenting mm. with a ketogenic diet go to the pharmacy, they get urine test strips, or it's like €8, Euros, yes. $10, something like this. And they do well to show when you're in a, you know, a, a, I want to mm. say optimal ketogenic stay in quote. Uh, uh, and they do work to show when you're in a quote optimal fat burning ketogenic state. And then my understanding, what, mm. here's what I noticed myself was early on, they definitely yes. were, were good. But then over the years, uh, no, it actually registered low. And when you checked the BHP on a blood meter, yes. you had high ketones. So it was said that people who are keto adapted uh, no burn. Mm. This is what was said. I, I, you can expand on it. Burn ACAC better, and therefore it doesn't register in urine. You want to clarify that um, that you know often beginners have high ACAC. And then once people are quote adapted, and I'd sure. like you to clarify. Um, yeah, so it's a very, very Thanks. common perception that um, in prolonged ketosis, your body is uh, consuming or using up more ketones and excreting fewer. Um, I've actually seen, uh, I think it's at least one, if not two papers that seem to indicate the opposite. So when you are, important thing to remember is when you're in ketosis, that ketones are actually a relatively small percentage of the total amount of fuel your body's using from fat. Um, you're in a fat-burning state, which means your body is also using fatty acids without converting them to ketones. Um, it's using the ketones for certain parts of the body that need them, like the brain, for example, because fatty acids can't pass the brain-blood barrier. And as a very interesting study that showed uh, people who are in a state of nutritional ketosis in the earlier stages um, were uh, oxidizing or using up about 95 to 96% of the total ketones produced. And after roughly two weeks of prolonged ketosis, um, this declined to a steady state of about 83, 85%. So they actually as a share of total ketones produced, oxidized fewer ketones rather than more. And the most obvious explanation for this is that in a more fat-adapted state, uh, their body is more readily making use of fatty acids for energy in general. Um, 
because most people typically are not in a highly fat adapted state. They're primarily used to using, um, you know, glucose for energy. Um, so I've spoken on this topic to um, uh, Brenna Stubbs of Human. She was the, the lead researcher there. And one thing I understand from her is that um, one factor that can have an effect on the percentage that's utilized of ketones that's utilized is the availability of carbohydrate in the body, whether it's glycogen stores or in, in as consumed. So that would be a variable factor. But one thing that doesn't seem to change is that in prolonged ketosis, uh, BHB is the dominant ketone. So there may well still be situations where, yes, um, in deep ketosis, you do um, excrete as a percentage uh, fewer ketones. There seem to be many cases in which that's not the case. But for us, it doesn't matter too much because what we're tracking, what's really important to us is the ratio between those two ketones as they appear in the urine, not so much the amount, because the ratio is indicative of the stage of ketosis. Uh, and that's why it's not something we're not particularly worried about. So this is quite exciting. So I'm just so the listeners, I can be sure that listeners are following could you clarify why having both ACAC and BHP and being able to do the ratios between them is advantageous to take an sure. animal? So, um, you know, if you were to test BHP in your blood, um, you would, um, you know, you would have it obviously a very, you would know your ketones right now. Um, you would have an uh, actual measurement. It's a great measurement. Uh, you wouldn't know ACAC as well. So, um, you know, you would know the total amount of BHB in the blood, but not the amount relative to, to ACAC. Uh, but you would still get a pretty good indication from the increase in BHB that you're in, in deep ketosis. So no problems there. Um, but if you're using the urine measurement, essentially you're getting a actionable, painless alternative to the blood test um, that you can use, you know, as long as the blood test after the normal strips have stopped working. Another fact that's important is when you use a normal urine test strip, people typically find that they don't get ketones in the urines for the first couple of days unless they're used to being ketosis. And um, one adjustment we made to the BHB test is that the detection limit is very, very low. It's 0.1 millimoles. So the standard, sorry to get a bit technical here, but the standard ACAC urine test strip has a detection limit of 0.5 millimoles. That's five times the renal threshold. And the BHP test that we have is 0.1. So you get early detection of ketones in urine, the normal urine test strip. You get long-term detection even after the normal strip stops. And you get a clear indication of the stage of ketosis and it's completely pain-free. Um, I understand that, you know, apart from a small subsect of people who keep testing blood ketones most sort of non-power users of, of of blood testing you know blood ketone products typically stop after about three months and that's coming from actually a leading supply in the field so um yes. can you repeat that uh, please what, so what stops after i understand from a leading um maker actually of of uh ketone blood ketone testing devices that most people who are how can i say not typically a male biohacker, but often say a female dieter, for example, it's quite common in the keto space. 
stop using the blood testing ketone blood test after about three months so that's the typical customer life cycle is three months for those strips um and you know there are some people who say well i can feel more to test but also pain is a major issue for many people as well of having to keep using the lancet so uh, that's an issue that we obviously you know overcome okay i was wearing a mm. continuous glucose monitor years before um uh, they were popular and I, similarly i was measuring ketones and yeah i i very rarely measure nowadays yeah. because i know where my blood sugar is i know where my ketones are you just come to know these the only time i measure my bhp and glucose is when i'm trying to have when i'm trying to work on the glucose ketone index yes, you heard yes. of gki okay so you know that you want to achieve certain uh, values there in order to uh, reduce your chances of uh, chronic disease live a longer life etc gki is very cool it'd be super cool if you could build it into your uh, body code yeah i mean you know um when you have a, a urine measurement, you're getting an average over time, right? So you would be, the comparison point would be um, if you're testing during the day, uh, one urine test to the last three hours typically of, of uh, blood ketone data. Um, and if you were testing, you know, day to day in the evening or morning, it's more like an average, but um, I think if people want to know the ratio right now, then probably the best one to use is the blood test because it's really a spot test. Um, really, the value of urine is that you know with a single with a single uh, daily test or even twice weekly, you're getting an overall uh, picture. Um, and not just looking at the ketones themselves, but also looking at ketones relative to things like magnesium, sodium, potassium, and other markers. So I think people are very concerned about uh, the glucose ketone index. They should test from blood. That's great. Um, but if they're looking for more general tracking, I think the urine test is probably going to be the more comfortable option to use. Appreciate it. The only other thing that instantly pops to mind of importance I must bring up is I, you know, I mm. understand the benefits of BHP generally, and it's a great blood test, etc. But I, again, picked up the acetone, I, yeah. like a breath-based uh, ketone test, like ketonics or level. And I think level last time I checked mm. was like $400. So maybe it became cheaper, I'm not sure, but it was pretty expensive. And I, I was led to believe that was uh, like the best in terms of ketone monitoring acetone. So maybe uh, if, if you've got any comments on measuring sure. acetone, so I think you know, Level's a great product. Um, I would never seek to detract from that. Um, you know, acetone, breath acetone seems to have a good correlation with BHB. So um, I'm not saying that you should use our device as the only device for testing your ketones, what I am saying is, you know, using a breath measuring device, you're getting a single biomarker. 
And one of the beauties of urine testing is that with a single test, you're getting you know, eight, 10 biomarkers with a single test. So it's very efficient for your time and also for your cost in terms of the feedback you get. So again, um, level, great products, super happy to see them you know, in the space. Um, some people would prefer just to use that ketones don't want to test anything else but i think if you want to go beyond just ketones and see more of a picture of their health and see those things together then the urine test could be a more efficient option yeah where you're pushing into or indicating um is that too often we're measuring single point in time single variables for an individual and actually, when the more once once you've worked with these numbers for years, you begin to see that the numbers actually don't mean that much as we're led to believe. I.e., checking them against a, a lab reference chart can often be quite meaningless. You have to understand what many of the biomarkers are at that point in time in relation to each other, and secondly, how they change over time mm. for the individual. And the more you realize this, the more I, I've came to realize how absurd a lot of testing is. It's only for a quick diagnostic, put you in a disease bucket or not. That's all it seems to serve. And sometimes it, that putting you in certain disease buckets, I, quite a few people actually don't belong in them. And you get this, I get the sense that it's uh, to drive pills and procedures. You know, there's some misalignment there in the, in the healthcare system. So is this what you're this is what you're indicating that it's more of a graph more of a network that's going on an individualized one so it's better to look at multiple markers simultaneously and particularly over time for that individual which healthcare cannot offer today you know, healthcare plays a really important role obviously there are certain issues like especially if you're in the US um, people don't necessarily have a positive relationship with their doctor because it's very expensive just to go and get seen um, I live in Tokyo, and people here, especially they're older, will go to the hospital just because. Sometimes they'll only want to speak to someone, but also because it's cheap and accessible. So their experience of healthcare is, is quite radically different. I think you know there are some tests that definitely you should get done in a healthcare context that you just can't do at home, and that's absolutely the place for you know for for the healthcare industry. But really important point is that. We are our own doctors. I mean, there are some conditions that it's hard to maybe control your risk of getting, but especially for the really major ones, including even cancer, because there are many behavioral factors that affect cancer risk, is going getting your physical is a bit like passing the exam, right? So no one just turns up for the exam without doing preparation. Uh, they study, they understand. I mean, not people obviously don't, you know, study which biomarkers the doctor's going to be taking, but you know, the result you get on your annual physical is to a large extent, not entirely, but to a large extent, the result of those behaviors that you are following in between your doctor's visits. And this leads into a second point, which is, yeah, data tracking is obviously very important. I think it's very important that it's natural and not neurotic. Uh, people shouldn't have to obsess over being healthy because health is also holistic. It's mental. It's not just physical or biological. And that's why we're about giving people the most data with the least time, pain, and cost, or zero pain in our case, so that they can really be efficient in how they spend time on their health. Um, 
but yes, we're absolutely moving towards a more integrated approach. So we you know we have access to genetic data. Um, now we're moving more to a world of epigenetics because just because you have certain genes it doesn't mean they necessarily express themselves. Um, it hasn't stopped people from maybe, as you hinted at earlier, selling diet programs based on your genes, which may or may not be have any really basis in in science. Then there's obviously the gut biome, and this is also a very precious source of data. Um, one really awesome startup in this area is BiomeSense, doing home-based toilet, uh, home toilet-based microbiome analysis. So the, the the poo side to RP, right? And you know, one of the issues in the microbiome space has been that people are again providing lifestyle recommendations based on a microbiome screen. The problem is the data sets they're referencing are very limited, maybe 20 or 30 subjects in a study where very few samples are taken because it's very hard to get subject, you know, study subjects to donate lots of poo for a test. It's not pleasant to be able to do it. And the founder of this startup actually started it for that reason because he saw people essentially, you know, he saw a lack of good data in the microbiome space and wanted to solve that. So again, like genetic testing, hugely important data, lots of potential, but some quite important issues. Home blood testing. Uh, we obviously see what, saw what happened to Theranos. Um, there's one startup in the US, which is kind of under the radar right now, called Core, C-O-R. Uh, if you type in Know Your Core, you'll find them. And I, Bob was a speaker at the 2016 event I did. Uh, I understand the company is actually still alive. They actually raised money from a top VC about a year and a bit ago. Did, but no one's seen them re-emerge yet. But that's a very promising product because you get about five biomarkers with a single arm prick. Um, yeah, and when I saw your device, the physical picture of it, somehow I was reminded of Core from Bob Schmidt. He instantly came to Yeah, mind. I mean, I see some similarity to the shape. The way the sample's loaded is very different. Um, I meant more as a device oh, yeah, absolutely. in the bathroom. And I mean, I would, I would love to use both yeah, products. Um, um, and then, you know, um, what other devices do we have that are easy to use? So one, for example, Naked Labs is a very exciting startup that has a body scale that scans you with a mirror, scans your body composition. So it's not going to be, you know, um, as, uh, uh, accurate. I think it's called hydrostatic weighting, but basically where they, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, uh, I know the company but that's too. a very, you know, that's something that could be done as a daily habit without much, with much hassle. Right. And then you have some very interesting breath testing companies like food marble, where they are checking your gut response to foods, essentially how are well you digest certain foods based on, in this case, the nitrogen content of your breath. So I think it's a very exciting space. I think there are a number of challenges, but you know, about four or so years ago, there was a very exciting startup called Q, C-U-E dot M-E, and it's still around. And they did an amazing promo video for this home device that tests both blood and saliva, and it will test vitamin D and testosterone and these things. And it ended up raising a lot of money and basically making a single uh, diagnostic test for Johnson & Johnson. So you know they were clearly a bit early for that consumer vision of effortless data at home. But I think we're now a lot closer to it. And obviously, that's a movement that we're leading as well. You know, Q had some setbacks. Core has some setbacks. We've had some setbacks in the past. But I really feel very, very excited now about 
where home and personalized health is going. You know, we're seeing the genetic space really evolving from you know classic genomics to genetics to epigenetics, getting much more reliable insights. We're seeing this shift from the microbiome industry to you know getting higher quality data. Um, and then the last piece, of course, is how to bring this all together. And this is probably the challenge I see probably more in the tech industry space. So people who are less experts about the biomarker science, people who are really interested in the data is, well, who's going to own this data and how do you bring it all together? But probably the one person I would say who I think really is a, a tremendous pioneer in this space is Professor Mike Snyder at Stanford. And he is the head of the Center for Genomics and Personalized Medicine. He is both a super legit researcher and also a, le a legit biohacker. So I think he even pre -di early diagnosed his own Lyme disease by wearing like seven wearable devices over like six months or something ridiculous. But he he does what's called omics or integrative omics, which is combining uh, genomics, metabolomics, uh, microbiome testing, you know, the biome of the skin, the mouth, not just the gut, and wearable data to try and go deeper and deeper still. So I think when I talk about before about, you know, having these, you know, fully realized, you know, health analyzing toilets to five to seven years, I really believe now that it's not an exaggeration that we are, you know, in our lifetime, I think it's going to be a radical transformation of home health testing. And that's not going to be just for biohackers. Um, you know, in the same way that you've seen quantified self, people used to talk about quantified self, they don't anymore. They even stopped doing the conference. And that's really because quantified self shifted towards this constant biohacking. It's more salesy, it's more marketing, but biohacking really made the concept more accessible to people and it had a more holistic and emotional aspect. But I think there's a third stage of evolution, which will be to the true mass, mass uh, you know, mainstream health tracking and probably a huge trend behind that's going to be healthy aging that we've seen excuse my my long dialogue but we've seen you know the athletes and the biohackers and people typically in their 30s and 40s maybe 20s really be on the leading edge of this health tracking but i think that's going to shift to the people who really have the deepest desire to be optimal and the deepest desire to be young and healthy which and actually have the most money which is people who are aged 50 60 and above so I think that's going to be a big transformation in the next 10 years. I concur with everything you said. And you 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 said you said a lot. Sorry about that. <laughs> I completely appreciate it. No, I, I, I love that. I appreciate it. And I'm so happy that we're speaking mm. for the first time. Uh, it's, it's great to hear it. And it's great to have uh, a record button going so others also get value. I, I'll pick up on a couple mm. of things you said there. I feel we could chat all day, and I know you've got a cough, so I'll I'll keep proceeding ahead. I'm surprised you know Food Marble. Did they come to Hacks also? Yeah, so, um, I mean, we are alumni. They're an Irish company, and they were planning on adding hydrogen. I'm just very surprised you, you yeah, know I mean, of I've, them. They do have the exciting they're development great. So they've their products are in the market, so kudos to them. Um, I think the sensor itself is not is uh, not too heavy duty so they managed to get the cost down to a good price and and they have rave reviews which is the most important thing they have customers who love the product and yes they started with the nitrogen testing but they're moving on to the hydrogen testing maybe it's the other way around i forget um and that's really 
I really also see them, I see them as being brothers in the same space because we are testing data from waste. We are testing data from the things that we have to produce from our own body, the saliva, the feces, and also the breath. Um, this is an interesting anecdote. The uh, Toto, the toilet company I mentioned, they actually spent some time uh, trying to analyze fecal gas, essentially your, not really your farts, but the, the air that comes out of your posterior when you use the toilet to try and get insights. Um, the other startup in, uh, well, SOSV is the fund that invested in us. So I'll say SOSV. They own IndieBio. Probably some of your listeners will have heard of IndieBio and SF. And also Hacks, which is based in Shenzhen and Rebel Bio in the UK, is Cora. And Cora is very interesting because obviously you know what a CGM is, a continuous glucose monitor. And Cora is the first device I've seen that is a multi-biomarker continuous monitor. So they are testing uh, glucose and lactate. Uh, why is lactate important? Well, it's important for athletes. Talk about the lactate threshold, for example. Essentially, it's the, um, you know, pushing your training intensity as far as you can without fatiguing yourself to improve your endurance. And they basically design a system where they can have very small needles that are completely painless and they can multiplex. So it's not just glucose, but they can have, I think, up to four needles right now. And they've also innovated, uh, made innovations in the manufacturing process to automate what was previously a manual process and was one of the major reasons for products like Dexcom, for example, being very expensive. So I see Food Marble, you know, obviously ourselves and BiomeSense, all as it happens, SOSV startups, really pioneering in that space of data from waste and then Cora being, you know, the next gen CGM. And then hopefully, I really hope that Cora comes to market and will be that that blood lab test at home that we, we all really want. So yeah, that's very exciting. Yeah, uh, it is exciting. So yeah, Food Marble do hydrogen today and they may have plans for methane. Is, I, I test think some cows while they're at it. <laughs> Yeah, because a lot of people have, for example, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, so you could potentially use it in, in that mm. setting. So this home health monitoring, you know, instantly the, you could also include the likes of Alexa, Amazon Alexa, like voice biomarkers comes to mind, and, and Alexa that also gathers data from these devices. Uh, that you mentioned, including your own. <clears throat> the the whole uh, biohacker thing to me seem, uh, how could I put it? To me, it's an indicator of the future we've already arrived at. Quantified self, I think, goes back to 2008, and then it led to what became uh, Fitbit. I mean, I, I think one of the founders used to go to, was one of the early... Um, uh, people at Quantified Self, and it led to the whole fitness tracking, well, fitness trackers, etc. And I think that, you know, Quantified Self, in my opinion, has, you know, it's, it's, it's past its time. And I think the the now of it is Quantified Health, Wellness, and Aging. And that's where we're aiming now. And by health, often people mean disease, but we actually mean health. It's amazing how little we know about measurements of health 
except for, you know, some fitness like VO2 max or HRV, but it's very limited, uh, our measurements of health. If, if we had a planet, it's, it's just like checking two cities, so to speak. So we're quite limited in the resolution uh, of measuring health. So for that reason, I, and a number of other reasons I won't go into at this point, I renamed this podcast and relaunched it as uh, Quantified Health, Wellness, and Aging. And you're actually the, the first guest under that new naming. And also I've created a LinkedIn group, which will be live later today or tomorrow, which is for industry professionals and it's quantifying health, wellness, and aging. So it's interesting that you brought it up. So biohacking is the, you can see the wishes to take control of our health because of the chronic disease burden of obesity, of people feeling like crap, of people having uh, brain fog, etc. We're under constant bombardment, uh, like with toxic loads, etc., and the orthodox healthcare isn't taking care of subclinical um, issues, and it's letting people blindly walk over decades into horrible diseases and decreased health span. So, and people are learning that health isn't binary. They can upgrade their health, feel better, have more energy, even if they currently do f- think that they're well. There's even higher levels. So I appreciate bi- the term biohacking and meaning, hey, we're trying to take control of our health where it's modern distributed decentralized preventative healthcare and we're adding optimization because healthcare doesn't include optimization services another oddity of the paradigm but this hasn't became networked yet and i think this is in fact i know this is where we're going the instead of just being isolated individuals having meetups it becomes sort of distributed in a network and quantification is the currency of that and then when you begin to see that, it's just an explosive picture that's never-ending value. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think I would largely agree with, with many things you say. Um, I mean, biohacking is, it kind of takes me back to the point about personalization of health, that uh, there's a health aspect to biohacking and there's a, like a physical health and there's a psychology aspect. So people come to biohacking, I see, or the concept of biohacking for different reasons. Some people come because of a previous condition that really made them feel, I really need to do something with my body. Um, some people feel that they couldn't, you know, get the help they wanted from the medical system. I think it's I think it's very important that we, in my opinion, that we we try not to blame at least the doctors. I think we have an extremely broken, at least in the UK, uh, USA, uh, healthcare insurance system. Um, you know, uh, I think the most important innovation we probably need is single payer or something similar to that, rather than, um, you know, say private health insurance. I probably will offend some people for saying that, but. Um, you know, you've upset a lot. I know. Of I know. I mean, I know. Um, <laughs> I might have to edit that bit out. Um, but what I mean is, um, doctors are our friends. You know, they they are there to help us. And I think most people who go into the profession really want to care for um, 
patients uh, incidentally while we're talking about insurance the irony is that private insurance is actually still a form of socialism i'm not a socialist but it's socialized in the sense that by paying premiums you are paying for other people who get sick so it's kind of mm, i'll stop there <laughs> but yes um so i think you know it's really i think it's i see quite a lot in the keto um also carnivore and later related spaces people saying well you know medical system has lied to us you know they lied to us you can't trust your doctors some influence say well trust me you know buy my program buy my products and there's some truth in that but people ultimately are responsible for their own health and doctors are ultimately there to help you um i think it's important we have good care for a good price but um i think biohacking as a concept probably was really born in the US because there was such a neglect of health uh, and and at the same time it's almost like a an extreme that was produced in response to that in the same way that you have gym culture um really grew up in the US right the body beautiful in such a big way um but now what we're having is you know having come from that very niche perspective of quantified self then to biohacking really what i think what we're seeing it's most exciting is going to be just a normal mainstream culture of health and wellness but what is definitely true is in the biohacking space because wellness is a more ambiguous concept and it's also a state of mind that you know some people make very good money by simply making people feel good about themselves and that's great but it's not necessarily scientific what they're doing either so i think there's always that tension that when you see the traditional medical industry things can often be more scientifically rigorous although it's obviously been shown that many research papers and can also be uh you know biased or inaccurate there's more rigor but there's obviously less care for the total person and the pre-patient you know i really one thing i really notice when i go to healthcare and medtech conferences i do it less now is two things people talk about quality of care not access to care and secondly they talk about treatment rather than prevention and i think what i would like to see is more scientific rigor and objectivity in the wellness industry but a lot more empathy um and compassion in the medical industry and i think if those two can come together it's a very exciting future again i concur and find your views laudable and Again, we have a, a nice matchup here. I'm not only concerned about healthcare not being data-driven and often having, well, mostly having clinical practices stated to be on average 17 years behind clinical research, which is uh, quite alarming. But I've been working for a number of years in what we'll, we'll call the wellness, wellness industry and I've came to see that it's a wild west, and I feel pretty bad because I know a lot of products and services offered just are are not worth the money being charged. I'll leave it at that and just say the wellness market is like the wild west. And, for example, you picked up on my uh, hint of, like, Genetic testing for dye is bullshit. Some other tests also are. I want to go, won't go into there because I appreciate mm. the businesses they're trying to build and how they're trying to get somewhere. And uh, 
So that's also why I'm interested in quantification. is isn't just because of healthcare, i.e. this reactive mm. uh, system that waits for you to get sick first and doesn't do optimization, but it's because the wellness market itself uh, is often misleading. Once we start quantifying, then we have a currency that operates across the entire system and it will fuse with insure tech and fintech. It's amazingly exciting, but I don't want to jump too ahead in the future. Um, and I do need to ask you some questions before I lose you. So you also, um, in this body coach, you also have electrolytes like magnesium. And I must cover magnesium with you because uh, magnesium is, uh, I think I've held the same opinion for five years. It's a, it's a number one thing I believe most people should be taking, and it should be taken quite a lot and in a number of forms. Let me just quote Norman, uh, Dr. Norman Shelley to you. Every known illness is associated with a magnesium deficiency. Magnesium is the most critical mineral required for electrical stability of every human, every cell in the human body. A magnesium deficiency may be responsible for more diseases than any other nutrient. And yet many of these uh, illnesses Americans have, uh, they're needlessly suffering and they're getting given drugs, could actually be cured with magnesium supplementation. Uh, So do you want to talk about uh, the electrolytes first that your uh, device can measure? Sure. So there are four ones right now, uh, sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium. Uh, we don't test things like zinc, for example, because it's not super reliable in urine. It's best to test things like zinc and feces. But for these four, um, they're very important, and they all play you know, um, different roles. But um, it's commonly said, you know, people are told, what's your salt intake? Don't have your salt intake too high. And there's some truth in that, but the picture is a bit more nuanced. Sodium or s- salt is sodium chloride is really really important um, for many many body functions one thing i learned recently actually is that sodium is used by the body to transport glucose into cells so when you consume carbohydrates um, you may know that your body releases insulin and insulin causes your body to retain sodium a major reason for this is it needs that sodium to get the glucose into the cells so if you have a high carb low fat low salt diet it's a terrible combination because you have that huge insulin stimulation, low sodium availability uh, to process that glucose, um, and honestly low fats, which is not good for your hormonal health. Um, but sodium, you know, sodium has a very important relationship with potassium. Uh, most of your sodium is contained in your blood, and most of your potassium is contained outside the blood, which means in the cells and in the fluid between uh, cells and organs. Um, the interstitial fluid and um, the uh, ions these sodium potassium ions can be exchanged between these different compartments pushed back and forward um, through something called the sodium potassium pump Uh, and that pump is powered by magnesium so if you uh, if you have high salt and low potassium you can suffer from elevated blood pressure why because in your body water moves to the area of highest electrolyte concentration um, it does that in order to reduce the concentration of electrolytes if you have high sodium and you have low potassium generally speaking more water will move into the area where the sodium is to reduce that concentration relative to the concentration of potassium 
and that area is primarily the blood. Blood volume increases, blood pressure increases. Um, there are obviously other factors involved, but that's a pretty good general rule. Um, and uh, you know, magnesium is uh, a very important factor in powering the pump that causes ions to be exchanged back and forth between these two compartments, you know, for essentially for electrolyte balance. So if you have even you know a reasonable amount of potassium in your diet and you have low magnesium, some people can experience you know high blood pressure symptoms as a result. So it's really, really critical. Um, calcium is also really important. So people typically think of calcium as being something you consume to keep your bones and your teeth strong, and that's true. But calcium also has another very important role, which is it helps uh, what's called smooth muscle, but basically muscle tissue, relax. Um, so when you, sorry to talk dark conversation, when you die, um, we talk about rigor mortis, so your muscles become stiff. It actually takes energy and electrolytes to make your muscles soft. They're not naturally soft. Um, so if you have elevated blood pressure or elevated blood volume, I should say, having a good amount of calcium in the diet is very helpful to avoid your, muscle, your blood vessels being too stiff and give them some flex to withstand that pressure. So okay, these four have a very important relationship. Also, high sodium displaces calcium. It pushes calcium out. So really you want you know, a good amount of sodium, a good amount of potassium relative to sodium, um, ideally the same amount or more, and then enough magnesium and calcium. And these four in harmony are going to produce the best results in terms of um, obviously physical performance, blood pressure, you know, general health, nerve function, um, and also even things like um, body composition. I mean, um, uh, sodium is a great, uh, like insulin as well, is a great retainer of water. Um, so typically people who have uh, have high sodium intake and low potassium can experience at least temporary water retention and increasing potassium intake can help with losing some of that retained water. So it really, really is critical not to think about your salt intake, but actually all four of these together in, in the right amount. I've been looking at this uh, for the past couple of years on and off of nutrient balancing and, you know, beginning with mineral wheels. And lately I've progressed on to hair mineral analysis because I'm concerned about the balance. And the shore of it is it's more of an art. Um, and there, there's no definite hard guides of ways of measuring ways of doing ratios and ways of knowing they're in harmony that at least I can see it's still sort of very practitioner led and guessing and playing. So maybe your device can help people, um, to achieve that balance. I don't know how, if it is possible. Uh, so if you, if we take hmm. magnesium, the magnesium, the magnesium, most people measure magnesium in the blood, uh, blood and it's blood only has one is only one percent in magnesium you have and the standard test i don't know why but the standard one i see doctors run is it's, it's useless it's only a test of can you keep homeostasis of magnesium in your blood and most is stored in your bones yes. something like 60 plus percent so obviously it'll pull from it so it's pointless 
And so you can test magnesium RBC intracellular. And I, that's what I test, and I find it useful. I'm doing a lot of magnesium dumping. I notice it's often low, and I don't know if that's because it talks to load or whatever, but, or I had amalgams. But Caroline Dean, who I'm sure you've heard of, the author of Magnesium Miracle, uh, she mentions a third type of testing, which is urine. But I think it's 24-hour collection. So I'm not sure what your device offers if I understood right that you need 24-hour sure. collection. So it's true that in... Um, clinical practice when people want to assess uh, electrolyte intake with what you might call gold standard accuracy so the most accurate way of assessing magnesium intake of any biofluid is a 24 hour urine collection Um, what i can say is that regular spot measurements of magnesium also provide a um, actionable measure so it's not gold standard compared to 24 hour collection but and you can see this again in, in, in sodium potassium studies as well that when people take a single spot measurement of say sodium alone, it's not a very useful biomarker. When they combine that with sodium and potassium and creatinine, it becomes better and pretty good. And when they take that on a periodic basis, it becomes a lot better. So um, you know, in an ideal world, we would get gold standard measurements of all our biomarkers all the time. Uh, that's not going to happen, um, <laughs> practically speaking, in terms of technology and cost. So what we do is, you know, for each thing we want to track, we try and find the best trade-off in terms of money, time, and pain um, to get the best overall picture. And that's that's what we offer. Um, yeah. Yeah, and if we had time, I would have picked up on that integrative uh, omics and began to challenge it from a cost perspective. Long term, it looks great. But I see we only have a couple minutes left, and I'm really worried that um, I don't right. honor your your time. So for, first of all, I would like to definitely need to ask, when's the device becoming available? How of much course. will it cost? How much do the sticks cost? Because this is more of a subscription, so, I guess. As you suggest, you know, the subscription is the main main part for us. So... We're looking at $20 a month, uh, give or take, which would give someone at least one test a week, if not two. Um, We will have a clearer sense of the final cost once we've finished our design for manufacturing, which probably I would say is by around June, we should have a much clearer picture of the final price. Um, The main uh, reader unit, the testic reader, which can test a range of different testics. It can also be used by more than one person. So it's designed that urine can never go inside. Everything stays on the chip in the testic. That's looking at being $100, give or take. Um, you know, We're really interested in a lot of people being able to use this on a regular basis rather than a small group of people, including biohackers, being the only ones who really use it. Um, How do I get one before anybody else? Of course. So... You know, I'm happy, obviously, of course, to, to prioritize you for the beta list. What we're doing is uh, we're expecting to go on sale in Q4 this year. So somewhere around October, November. Um, you know, hardware infamously takes time, but we've I think reached a stage now where we feel pretty confident about that deadline. Um, and then I'm going to be doing um, you know, in-person demos in Q2 this year. And then I expect to have a beta program in Q3 this year. So for a period of about three to four months, maybe five, we will have a number of devices in circulation, um, some with individual 
end users, some with influencers, some with media as well. So if people go to our website at bisu.bio, that's bisu.bio, um, there's a mailing list you can sign up for there. We will send you one email a month unless you opt in to get additional content. And you can just be you know, in the loop until that's that's available. So we're sorry to keep people waiting. It's been a long journey for us, but you know, we're very excited about this year. If you happen to be in the US, if you're in SF, LA, New York, uh, Austin or Seattle, uh, we'll be, uh, New York is New York, uh, Hudson Yards, by the way, we'll be in beta stores, that's B-A-T-A, from roughly mid-March. So keep an eye out. You can see the device in person, you can play with it, you can see the app as well. So that's an uh, opportunity to get up, up close to the device and have a feel for it even before it's on the beta program. I appreciate that. I'm going to throw in two questions, spend mm. a few seconds on them if that's Perfect. all you have left, but I have to throw them in quick. The future roadmap, and secondly, you made a statement I mm. saw online that chronic disease is self-caused and self-treated. So just future roadmap and your statement that chronic disease is self-caused and self-treated. Yeah. Um, so the future roadmap is launching this year with the diet testing, and then uh, I can't disclose the names, but we are progressing a number of collaborations that should uh, result in new testics being launched this year, some just by us, some co-branded for things like oral health, uh, baby health, pet urine testing, and so on, that this product is going to evolve from you know, initially for people who may be, say, keto dieters or athletes, for example, um, or you know, marathon runners, from that kind of initial segment to something for the whole family's health. And then based on this data, we can provide, not push, but provide relevant products and services. So one can be food delivery or potentially supplements or medicine um, or a consultation with a doctor, a dentist, a vet or a personal trainer. Um, and the app experience will also change eventually. Right now it's, um, slightly more on the biohacker side it probably if you look at ura ring you'll see some similarities of the design um but that's going to change to probably a basically a chat interface that you would speak to bisu maybe it's uh verbally maybe it's just through the app like chatting with a doctor and that's really the vision for the product that it will be an advisor in your home who knows may it be integrated with alexa one day um about the statement i said yes i said words to the effect of that you know, current disease is, is self-caused and self-treated. I want to make it very clear. I'm not accusing anyone of being negligent about their health. Um, our bodies are complex. Um, people have different circumstances, personal, financial, knowledge-wise. No one should be made to feel uh, ashamed of themselves uh, for their health condition. But what I mean is, is that um, you know, according to the CDC, so the Center for Disease Control in the US, half of disease risk is down to lifestyle behaviors. So your genetics is important. Your healthcare is important. Your environment is important. But by far, the largest single factor is what is happening in your daily life, what you eat, uh, how much you sleep, how much stress you have. Do you smoke tobacco? How much alcohol do you drink? These are the key factors. And... You know, our aim is not to, to shame or blame people. We, we really don't believe in that. But our aim is to empower people and to actually give them the tools they need to understand what's going on with their body 
Um, so that's what we're about. The chip measures eight biomarkers simultaneously. Currently, yes. We're aiming eventually to increase that to 10. It's more of a, a trade-off between the... Um, it's more a trade-off between the amount of sample that's sucked in and the size of the reagents themselves. So we're expecting we can probably get that to 10 by the end of the year um, once we get closer to the mass manufacturing device. But for now, it's eight, and we're very happy with that. But um, probably 10 would be the maximum. That's that's very standard. That's the number you get on a standard you know, clinical urine test strip. So we would not be limited in that respect. Daniel, I greatly appreciate your time. There's so many more questions I'd love to ask you, and every time you talk, it raises more questions I'd love to ask you. So hopefully you'll come sure. back on another time. And I wish to thank you for your time, your passion. I look forward to this product. I'm going to email you to see how I can get on the, the beta list for it. And once again, thank you so much for your time. And hopefully you come on another time. I can ask how you went from Japanese studies into this business. Oh, very much appreciated. Uh, my pleasure as well. I appreciate you reaching out. And I think next time it should be fun to share some experiments, share some data gathering, um, share some stories of people who use the product and ideally yourself as well. I think that would be a really nice evolution that will make it even more real for people who are listening. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Take care. For more information, please see hyperwellbeing.com or follow Twitter at hyperwellbeing.com.